So we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 20, and so follow along as I read. This is the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. Um, and as a church, we believe in what we could say um, expositional preaching. And what that means is that we take a book of the Bible and we go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And that's what we're going to be engaged in. And so pray with me and we'll get right to it. <sighs> Father, thank you again for this time. Thank you for encouraging us even before um, singing and the hearing of and the preaching of your word, you have encouraged us by this fellowship and this gathering. And so we are encouraged um, by the warmth and the love we have expressed to each other so far. Um, and so as we get into your word, may we be reminded and may we be strengthened um, by your love for us in Jesus Christ as it's been um, described here in this awesome and amazing pa um, passage. In his name we pray. Amen. Jesus was human just like you and I. He went through the stages of life experienced by all humans. He was thirsty and hungry. He became physically weak and needed rest. He mourned the death of loved ones. He was angered by hypocrisy and injustice. He felt fear and agony and eventually experienced death. Jesus was human just like you and I. Yet, what we're about to discover is that Jesus is more than a Jewish carpenter turned preacher who gained a following and founded Christianity, just as the true identity of Clark Kent is Superman, spoiler alert, if you don't know, or the secret identity of Batman is Bruce Wayne and Darth Vader, and I found out this because this, this I've just been watching Star Wars for the first time in my life, and I found out that Darth Vader was actually Anakin Skywalker, the estranged father of Luke Skywalker. <laughs> Discovered that. In our passage for this morning, we come face to face with who Jesus truly is. His true identity. The first thing um, we find out about Jesus is that he is God. 
Look at verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. The word image here comes from the Greek word ikon. It's also um, the same Greek word that inspired our English word icon. What's interesting is that the word image found in this verse has nothing to do with the kind of image we're familiar with. Okay? That is image as in photographs captured by a camera or image of a painting by an artist. The word image in this verse has a different meaning. It refers to, listen carefully, an exact visible representation of something or someone. Here, it's not talking about a physical representation like a statue or a painting or a photograph. It's not talking about any of them. It's referring to someone's true identity. It's talking about their personality or their attributes or their characteristics. So, what this all means for Jesus to be the image of the invisible God is that Jesus is the perfect and only visible manifestation of the invisible God. This then must mean that if you want to know who God is and what he's like, you look at who? Jesus. Jesus doesn't resemble God or he's like God, but he is God. When you see Jesus, you see God. Jesus is God revealed. He's God in human flesh. And so right here, right now, for most of you in this room, this truth, right, you don't have a problem with this. But I guarantee, right, tomorrow morning, hopefully, at work, if one of your co-workers were to come up to you and ask you what you did this weekend and you saw that as an opportunity for spiritual conversations, right? And you began to tell them that you went to church and one of the things that stood out to you at church was that you found out that Jesus was God. That conversation could get awkward very quickly, okay? Right here, we are very accepting and we believe that Jesus is God. But out there, it's controversial to say that Jesus is God. Many people in our city are good with the Jesus. Uh, that was a good man and moral teacher. Um, they're fine with the Jesus who's the poster boy or, of social justice, but many people will refuse to believe and accept the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. They're more likely to believe that Elvis and Tupac are still alive <laughs> and that Michael Jackson was an alien, right, than to believe that Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God, the last sentence of verse 15, look at it, last sentence of verse 15 informs us that he's the firstborn of all creation. All right? We often associate the term firstborn with order of birth. For example, my son Jesse, he's our oldest, and so we call him our firstborn. The term firstborn here, unfortunately, 
does not refer to chronological birth order. It's not what it's talking about. It's not saying that Jesus was the first human to be created. It's not talking about that. Here, Jesus as the firstborn of all creation means that he's first in rank and honor. Just as the lion is the king of the jungle, or Queen Elizabeth is the monarch of Great Britain, just as Michael Jordan is viewed as the greatest of all time in the world of basketball, Jesus Christ is the king and the ruler of the universe. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus deserves the highest honor in all of creation. So far, we've discovered that Jesus is God and that he's the only way, that he's the only one deserving of the highest honor in creation. Question, why does Jesus need to be supreme over creation? Why does Jesus need to be viewed as the first and most important of all creation? Why? It tells us in this passage. Look at verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Here are some facts you might enjoy. A square mile of fertile soil contains more insects than the entire human population on earth. The eye, right, our eyes, are one of the most complex, complex organs um, we possess. It's composed of more than two million working parts. In a lifetime, our hearts pump about one billion barrels of blood around our body. The sun has a diameter of 864,000 miles. The sun is so big that we could fit 1.3 million planets the size of Earth on it. The galaxy to which our sun belongs is called the Milky Way, and the Milky Way contains hundreds of millions of stars. There are so many facts about creation that would blow our minds, that would leave our jaws dropping. It really would. These are just but a few. But the point I'm trying to make is that everything we see, everything we hear, everything we experience, everything we smell and have discovered and are discovering is all created by Jesus. Jesus is the maker of all creation. So far in our series in the letter of Colossians, um, in the letter of Paul to the Colossians, we've discovered that one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae was to warn them about the subtle arguments and false teachings that threatened to undermine their faith. Amongst the many false teachings that were gaining traction in Colossae uh, was one that viewed Jesus as possibly the first and most important of the many gods, right, that came from God, all right? 
Not too long ago, I met a Hindu out there, and I was talking to him and trying to evangelize to him, and he was telling me about the Hindu religion, and one of the things he mentioned that I'm sure many of you are familiar with is that the Hindu religion has 33 million gods, right? And they throw Jesus in there. They're just saying, like, Jesus is just one of those gods that we have. And so there's nothing new under the sun, right? Thousands of years ago, in the city of Colossae, Paul is writing, right, to a congregation that are constantly being bombarded with these teachings that Jesus is just one of many gods that came from God. And what they didn't believe was that Jesus created the material universe. They believed that the work of creation and the creation of creation was done by some other God. Jesus is just one of those gods and he didn't create anything. Paul in verse 16, what he's doing is that he is refuting this belief by saying that Jesus created all things and that all things were created by him, through him, and for him. Theologian said this, he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So who is Jesus? So far we've discovered that Jesus is God's, he is creator, and now we're going to find out that he's not only creator, but he is the one that sustains all things, just as oxygen keeps us alive or a string keeps a beaded necklace together, Jesus is the one who sustains, upholds, and supports the universe. He holds all things together. Jesus is not removed from his creation. He's involved in his creation. For example, scientists say that the sun is 27 million degrees hot at the core. If the earth was a tiny bit closer to the sun, okay, the earth would fry, it would melt. If the earth was a tiny bit away from the sun, what would happen is that the inhabitants of earth would freeze to death. Guess what? What this is telling us is that Jesus is the one responsible for keeping the earth at just the right distance from the sun to prevent the earth from melting or freezing. Joseph Mary Plunkett was an Irish poet in the 1800s. And he wrote this well-known poem about Jesus' constant involvement in creation. Listen to this. This is what he said. I see his blood upon the rose and in the stars the glory of his eyes. His body gleams amid eternal snows. His tears fall from the skies. I see his face in every flower, the thunder and the uh, singing of the birds. 
are but his voice and carving by his power. Rocks are his written words. All pathways by his feet are worn. His strong heart stirs the ever-beating sea. His crown of thorns is twined with every thorn. These simple verses testify to the sustaining power of Jesus in the world. Jesus made all things and all of creation is held together by him and functions through him. Some years ago, South American company purchased a fine printing press from a firm in the United States. After it had been shipped and completely assembled, the workmen could not get it to operate properly. Finally, the company made contact the manufacturer, asking that the company send a representative immediately to fix the issue. Sensing the urgency of the request, the U.S. firm chose the person who had designed the machine to go and help. When he arrived on the scene, uh, the South American officials were skeptical. And the reason why they were skeptical was because it was a very young man. After some discussions, they sent um, this following message back to the manufacturer. And they said, hey, your man is too young. Send a more experienced person. And, they rep and the reply came back, guess what? He made the machine. He can fix it. Jesus made and created everyone and everything. He not only made us, he sustains us. But like South American officials, at times, were skeptical of his ability to help. And this is expressed in our constant refusal to acknowledge him as the only one who can fix our problems. Who or what do you turn to when you have a problem? Do you believe Jesus has a solution for the problems you're going through now, or are you seeking, first and foremost, solutions in the resources you have, in the connections you have? If Jesus made you and sustains you, he is more than capable of helping you navigate through life's stormy seasons. Let me say that again. If Jesus made you and sustains you, which we've clearly seen in this passage, he is more than capable of helping you navigate through life's storms. Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth, and he's also the one who sustains all of creation. Jesus is God. He is the architect and sustainer of creation. Lastly, we find out in our passage that Jesus is our Savior. Look at the first part of verse 18. It says, And he is the head of the body, the church. 
we've been looking at Jesus' reign over creation. Now we discover that he's the head of the church. And the church is not a building, okay? The church is a group of people who have been redeemed by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ and are committed to living and following Jesus. And the church, made up of believers, is the agent God uses to accomplish his purposes in the world. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of every established church on this planet, including our very own King's Cross Church. This church is not about me. This church is not about you. King's Cross Church is all about Jesus. We must never forget that Jesus is truly the senior pastor. He really is. And so everything we do as a church, what we sing, where we go, what we say needs to be all about Jesus. And the reason why it needs to be all about Jesus, because it is all about Jesus. Jesus, in reality, is truly the head of our church. The Pope, the Queen of England, and any other religious leader can never claim the role of being head of the church. If they do, this is what they're doing. They are guilty of dethroning Jesus from his rightful place. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of every church. And so, for King's Cross Church, I pray that we continually make it all about Jesus in everything we do and say as a church. And the reason why Jesus is the head of the church is because it tells us um, in, in the next part of verse, um, of verse 18, it says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Earlier, we discovered that the word firstborn doesn't mean position of birth, but status and rank. So this is not saying that Jesus was the first person in history to be raised from the dead. It's not saying that. What this means is that, what what this means is that of all the people that have been risen from the dead, Jesus is the most important. His resurrection is the most significant. And his resurrection should rank above all others because without Jesus' resurrection, there will be no resurrection for his people, for Christians, for believers. But because of Jesus' resurrection, because of his empty tomb, because of his victory over death, if you're here and you're a Christian, you have hope. What this means is that no matter how out of control and hopeless and challenging your life may be, know that God will do everything and provide you with everything to endure. Because Jesus burst forth from the grave like 
water from a fire hydrant, your life is moving towards an eternity with him where there's no more pain and where there's no more suffering. Jesus' resurrection is most significant because it provides hope for his people. Hope to endure and hope for eternal life. Yes, Jesus' resurrection provides believers with endurance and eternal life, but, and this is important, the goal of the resurrection is not only to provide us with all of these things. It's not. The ultimate goal of Jesus' resurrection is expressed in the last part of verse 18. Look at it. When it says that in everything... He might be preeminent. In taking his rightful place as Lord of all creation, sustainer of all creation, and the conqueror and defeater of death, because of who Jesus is and all that he has accomplished, Jesus must be preeminent in everything. Everything means. Everything. Jesus is king and Lord and supreme over everything. And this includes you. Jesus is king and ruler over everyone and everything. And the question is, is this a reality in your life? Is Jesus preeminent in your life? Is Jesus first place in your life? Is Jesus truly on the throne of your life? Is, G- is he supreme in your family? Is Christ central in your marriage, in your career, in your relationships? Does he have ownership of your time and your finances? Do you live in a way that would communicate to the people around you that nothing compares to Jesus Christ? Or have you relegated Jesus to the third will of your life? If Jesus is not preeminent in your life, he deserves to be. And he deserves to be not just because he's God, Not just because he created everything and sustains everything, but Jesus deserves to be preeminent in your life because he sacrificed his life in order to give you life. He's your savior. Look at verse 19 and 20. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why do you need to prioritize Jesus above everyone and everything? Why should you value Jesus more than your career or your relationship or your marriage or your children? Why should Jesus be preeminent in your life? This is why. Jesus 
the visible manifestation of the invisible God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, becomes a human. He lives a life without sin. He's accused of blasphemy for revealing his identity and sentenced to death by crucifixion on the cross. And in their book, When God Weeps, Stephen Estes and Joni Erickson Tada give the following account of Christ's death. Listen to this. The thorns that God has sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted around his own brow. On your back with you, one raises a hammer to sink in the nail. But the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute, for no one has this power on his own. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? Only by the sun do all things hold together. The victim wills that the soldier live on. He grants their continued existence. The man swings. As the man swings, the son, Jesus, recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm, the sensations it would be capable of. The design proves flawless. The nerves perform exquisitely. Up you go. They lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe, but these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation somewhere during this day, an, uh, an unearthly foul odor begin to drift, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father, he must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against the shivering remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so, but the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man! Why have you behaved so? You have cheated and lusted and stolen and gossiped and murdered and envied and hated and lied. You have cursed. You have robbed. You have overspent. You have overeaten. You have fornicated disobeyed, embezzled and blasphemed. I hate, loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the son is innocent. He is blameless. He is blamelessness itself. The father knows this, but the divine pair have an agreement, and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. 
The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks, drowning into raw, liquid sin. His stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply. The Trinity had planned this. The Son endured it. The Spirit enabled him. The Father rejected the Son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. Ladies and gentlemen, because of Jesus' obedience unto the point of death, unto death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 lets us know that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God revealed. He's the architect of creation, the sustainer of creation, and the savior of humanity. Today, my question to you is, will you recognize him as king? Will you recognize him as your savior? Will you recognize him as your creator? Will you make Jesus preeminent in your life? Pray with me. Father, thank you for allowing us to be exposed to who your son Jesus Christ is. And Father, may your spirit do and continue to do in all of our lives what I cannot do in these short 30 minutes and with this sermon. May you take everything we've been exposed to and may you utilize it to bring about your glory in our lives. May we see Jesus for who he really is. And as we do, may we make him first place and preeminent in our lives. And in his name we pray. Amen. Most scholars believe that this part of the letter Paul wrote to the Colossians is actually a popular hymn um, was a popular hymn in the early church. And what Paul did was, as he's writing a letter, he decides to insert um, this particular um, hymn into his letter to them. It was a worship song they sung in the churches back then. And Paul inserts this song in the letter to help 
make his points about who Jesus is. And this is awesome um, because Jeremy Treat, who's a great friend of mine and a pastor, what used to be my pastor, said that the most profound, this passage, you know, is the most profound theology and it does not come from a lecture or an essay but a song about Jesus because the more we understand about who Jesus is the more we understand sound theology it will lead us to doxology it will lead us to singing and so we've been exposed to some deep stuff and what we're going to do now is that we're going to begin by reflecting on everything we've heard Okay, and at this time, like I always say, it's so easy to be distracted. It's always easy to start thinking about what you're going to be doing next. But let me encourage or challenge you to focus, even if you need to have what we just studied in front of you and reread it again. Do that. If you need to pray, pray. If Jesus is not preeminent in all of your life, like all of us, begin to pray and ask Him to show you areas in your life where you're not prioritizing Him. And if you're here and you're, you're beginning to know Jesus, spend this time praying and asking Him to continue to open the eyes of your heart so you may know who He is. May this time of reflection be a time where you are enamored and in awe of who Jesus is. And then when we're done with that, we're going to sing and sing. And I want you guys singing because what we're going to sing is truth. And as we sing truth, we communicate truth to each other.